heart something I've been looking at and studying for a while. I have mentioned it uh, along the way over the last several months, and that, that's the parallels between the condition of men in the last days according to what the Word of God says as compared to what science, psychology, what they have to say about the condition of this world we live in in this hour. You know, everything the Bible calls sin, the world has made it a sickness. You know, an alcoholic, he's he's not a sinner, he's sick. You know, he's just sick. And homosexual, of course, he's not sinning. He's born that way, and we don't have a right to question that. Now we've got homosexual pastors and homosexual churches. That drug addict, that man, you know, he just can't help being what he is because he's an addict. He's sick. Well, the Bible calls all of that sin. But I want to I look at something tonight where we're, we're beginning to see a virgins as those different fields are becoming more and more concerned with situations and cases and conditions in our time that they can see are taking our world on a fast track to destruction. And they don't realize what they're saying and what they're doing, but they're coming back around to things that we have believed and preached for a very long time, and that is that there is one solution to it all. And when they, it's not that they don't see the problem, they just don't understand the solution yet. They're still trying to fix it in every other kind of way. Well, we have the answer, amen, and we have the message, and the message is the, is the gospel, and the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one solution to every problem around this world, and that is the message that I preach. My God, I feel the Holy Ghost. Amen. you got to feel the Holy Ghost when you're talking about this gospel and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 21. The apostle said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live, the life I live, is Christ. Now, the Bible said all scriptures given by inspiration of God. God breathed the Holy Ghost. Breathe this word of God through men of God to give you and I what we have. And here under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, the apostle says, for me to live is Christ. That is to say, in Christ, all Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're going to use that scripture for the springboard into a second text and to the remaining part of the message tonight. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you this evening. We thank you for your presence that we've already been made to feel in this house and for this wonderful opportunity to be gathered here, oh God, to worship you in the beauty of holiness. And I pray that you'd pour your spirit out upon us. I pray, God, that you'd anoint every person that's here tonight. I ask you, God, for the anointing of the Holy Ghost to preach and deliver this in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. And amen, you might be seated. For me to live is Christ, the apostle said, to die is gain. Now we know that when God created Adam, he created him triune. He gave him spirit, soul, and body. Adam then was governed by a spirit, and he was clothed in the glory and in the righteousness of God. But when Adam fell, he was no longer governed by a spirit, but by his flesh. He then, being governed by the natural man, became subject to outside influences that would shape him and mold him into a certain type of person that was outside 
of God's original and God's divine design. He then had to live by a commandment that to atone, he would have to sacrifice a blood sacrifice to God. Beginning with the shedding of blood, God began a process to deliver man from the nature of self and to reclaim that spiritual estate. But also in the Old Testament, God used things to shape and to mold men into who and what he had called them to be. For instance, God used the sheepfold. God used the desert. God used a wilderness or a prison to shape and change a man's perspective. We see that in the lives of men like David, Moses, and Joseph, and so on. But now, through salvation, sanctification, the baptism in the Holy Ghost, he would call us out, set us apart, and give us the power to be like Christ, to become the sons of God, and to work the works of Christ. We know that to be like Christ requires a deliverance from self, and to work his works is for his life and his purpose to become our life and our purpose. So there has to be a deliverance from the carnal dispositions of the natural man. Now that doesn't mean that everything that's good and commendable about a person will disappear. You'll have to understand what deliverance from the natural man and conformity to Christ means. Throughout that Old Testament, as we understand, Jesus was typed and foreshadowed by imperfect men. Is that right? He was typed and foreshadowed by men that were not absolutely perfect as himself. In Adam, he was the son of God, but without the fall. In Abraham, he was faithful, but without an Ishmael. In Moses, he was meek, without disobedience. In David, he was a king, but without adultery and murder. In Solomon, he was wise, but with, without loving many women and with strange gods. In Noah, he was obedience and deliverance without drunkenness. And so Christ was one man foreshadowed throughout the entire Old Testament with all of the good qualities, and yet he himself is without sin. So then conformity to Christ is a deliverance from the predispensations or predispositions of the natural man and an acceptance of the nature of Christ. It is not the joining of two natures. It is the replacing of the old nature with the new. And that is why he said in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and all things are become new. God's not going to share your life with his life. God's not going to live in a duplex. It is not the joining of two natures together. The old nature of the carnal and the natural man with the nature of Christ. One has to go, and the other has to replace it. Amen. The, the life of Christ replaces that old life. Amen. Now I'm in Christ. This is what the apostle meant in, in sum and total when he said, for me to live is Christ. It's not just naming the name of Jesus or claiming salvation.
It's not just living by a certain code of rules and, and dogmas and creeds. No, no. He said, for me to live is Christ. I am now a part of the body of Christ. Now, there was a crowd that got that wrong back several years ago, and they said that when you come into Christ, you're all little Christ. In other words, they, they, they said that you're little gods. Amen. Well, we got to understand. Some folks think they're God. I think sometimes, but there is a God, and you and I are not him or them. I'm not deity, I'm flesh, but I'm in Christ. For me to live is Christ. I am his representative as a part of the church in this earth. I've been called out from sin. I've been washed in his blood. I've been filled with his spirit. And so right here, right now, in the church, God has a living, breathing, walking, talking representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When they see us, they see, they're to see Christ. And Jesus said when we see him, we see the Father. We're not God. We're, we're not little gods. We're not little Christ. He said many will come in my name and say that I'm Christ. No, no. But we are the revelation of Christ and the revelation of the Father while we live in this earth because we're in Christ. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And so it's not the joining of two natures, the light and the dark. No, no. It is the replacing of one nature, the old nature, with new life, that the new life that comes with serving Christ. So there's no dark side to that new creation. If you believe that, say amen. There's no darkness in the new creation. He's not jealous. He's not prideful. He's not rebellious. He don't lie. He's not unfaithful. He don't commit adultery. He don't hate his brother, and it don't split churches. There's no darkness in that new creature. All of these things I mentioned are capabilities of the natural man. So the natural man in his natural state has a propensity to lean not only toward darkness, but into total darkness. Now, we find this all through the Word of God. Amen. God's Word warns us that to be carnally minded is to be at enmity with God. That carnal mind, that carnal nature is always working in opposition to the workings of God in our lives. Amen. And that's why the apostle also said, I die daily. The apostle knew that every day he had to march Adam's proud flesh out to that old rugged cross and nail him there. He said that old nature, that old man has got to die. If I don't, if I don't crucify him, he'll eventually take back everything that came to me when I came to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So the old flesh and the old nature has to die. But if that flesh, if you're not delivered from that, amen, the apostle Paul also said, he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Listen, he gave us there a terrible picture. He gave us there a very real picture of what it's like to be dominated by the flesh. And he said, oh, wretched man that I am, in the natural state, in that pre-conversion life, or in a life that drifts away from God or becomes governed by the flesh, he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this flesh? The picture there is 
this is of a criminal who's been sentenced to die. He'd be better off if they'd hang him. He'd be better off if they'd crucify him. He'd be better off if they'd decapitate him. But this picture is that of a criminal sentenced to death. And they strap or tie a dead corpse to his living body, hand to hand, head to head, amen, feet to feet. And he has to live with that putrefying, rotting flesh until the disease of that flesh contaminates his body and he gets sick and dies. Amen. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this flesh? And that's exactly what Paul is saying happens to a man in his spiritual walk if he allows this flesh to dominate in his life or if he's governed by that flesh. He goes into total darkness and eventually into total spiritual death. That's why the Bible calls that lake of fire the second death. There's a physical death, but there's a second death where the spirit of a man dies. Listen, to be governed by the flesh is to live in opposition to all God is and all God desires of your life. Amen. And we see a society now that is governed more by self than at any other time in the history of this world with the exception of a time when God sent a flood and killed them all. Amen. Matter of fact, this generation is known as the me generation. It is a generation of self. It is a generation of self-worship. Amen. That's why we have all these intrusions into the gospel, and we call it, you know, humanism, where it extracts all the good things and blessings and qualities from the gospel but leaves the lordship of Christ out because man don't like to be governed by something other than himself. But dying to the flesh is to come alive to God and to put your life in God's hands and understand that you exist to serve not yourself but another who is higher than you are. Hallelujah. That song says, I was born to serve the Lord. You wasn't born to live in sin. You wasn't born to live governed by your flesh. Amen. You were born to serve him and to bring him greater glory. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3 gives us the spiritual condition that parallels a very clinical diagnosis of men, of men or of people totally given over to self or to self-worship. Now, we've read this a thousand times. I want you to listen as we go through it tonight. And what you'll see is the characteristic of one, but also the characteristic of many. Not just a person, but a people. And it's clinical. I mean, the Bible got it right. A long time before psychologists ever figured out what was going on in society. Listen to what he said in 2 Timothy 3. He said, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. He said, it's going to get dangerous just before the Lord comes back. It's going to be a terrible, perilous, dangerous time in the last days. Listen, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now, how many times have you read that and thought it must be talking about homosexuality? Well, that can come in. That's a, a fruit of self-worship and self-love. But here, he's talking about men loving themselves. Men becoming their own little gods. Amen. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. In the book of Deuteronomy, 
front of me. God addressed that rebellious son, that son that was rebellious, that refused to respect his mother and his father. It, it wasn't just a little bad behavior that God was dealing with there in the book of Deuteronomy. This was a life of someone living for self and in total rebellion outside of any governing authority. And God said to that rebellious son, he said, of that son, stone him. He said, kill him. Amen. Now, why would God kill somebody for just a little bad behavior? Or why would God kill somebody who some might say, looking back, must have been a little sick in the head? Amen. Because it wasn't that. He was living in open rebellion. We're going to look at him here in a little more detail as we move on. And God said, that spirit does not fit with what's going on among my people. It's got to be purged. You've got to get that out. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, listen, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinence, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Think about that. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, he said, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, perversions, ever learning, the Bible said, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janies and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the flesh. Now we'll come back to that. And before we go before we go further, as we mentioned before, for everything the Bible calls a sin, the world calls it a disorder or a sickness. Amen. The clinical parallels, according to the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, that, that word disorder has become a very controversial uh, word of late in professional circles because of commonality, because of so many that are affected by some of the same so-called disorders. In fact, they have replaced the word disorder in most of these cases, not all, but in most of these cases with the word adaptation. In other words, they see a progression of a beginning of something that's bad and the learning of it until it characterizes a man's life. And it's scaring some of the modern, uh, cutting-edge, leading psychologists to death. Amen. And the church, listen, the church has accommodated the problem by preaching some kind of an off-the-wall message that moves away from deliverance and tells people that the old life is now just a part of what they are, just excess baggage, just excess baggage. I disagreed with that the first time I ever heard it when a pastor tried to talk about excess baggage. I said, I don't believe in that. I believe in a God that delivers from the old life. I believe in a God that delivers from a past. I believe in a God that overcomes abuse. I believe in a God that sets a man free. Our God is a chain breaker. Oh my God, somebody say amen. I've got to move on. Amen. But that word disorder has become very controversial because of commonality. And they're saying either society itself is just sick as a whole or society is 
is given over to self-worship and society is wrong. I prescribe to the latter. Society of our time, our society, is given over to self-worship and just wrong. But let's look at the clinical diagnosis of what the Bible calls uh, a condition of society in the last days, and that would be extreme narcissism. Extreme narcissism. We live in a very narcissistic society. Narcissism, uh, according to the Word of God, would be self. Self-worship, self-love. Uh, self becomes uh, God to the, to the individual or the person. And there are three manifestations that affect us greatly in our society now. And that is narcissism, sociopathy, and psychopathy. Here's where the leading psychologists say we are in this frighteningly narcissistic or self-worshipping society. Let's look first at narcissism and see if you know someone. You're going to recognize someone on your job. You're going to recognize someone uh, uh, in your family. You're going to recognize someone in the church, uh, in the church world, just because of the similar character traits of what I'm about to show you that parallels what the Bible has to say. But this isn't coming strictly from the Bible. This is psychology. This, this comes from the DSM 4 and 5, which is the latest version from the leading psychologist of the nation and the world trying to describe and diagnose the human condition. So let's look first at where the root problem is. Now, narcissism comes from the word narcissist. Narcissist was a Greek god who loved himself. He was so beautiful. He loved to look in the mirror. He admired himself. I mean, the beginning was his self, and the end all was his self. And narcissists stared in a mirror so long. There are two stories uh, that, that run together here. Some legends say that he stared in the mirror at himself and loved himself so much for so long that he thirsted to death and died. Some say that he looked at his reflection in a pool of water until he was so enamored he just fell over in the pool of water and drowned. But did you know, even though that's Greek lore and legend, a narcissist always self-destructs somewhere along the line. But narcissist is the worship of self, to be enamored with self. Have you ever seen anybody who was all about them? Amen. If they could characterize their own life in one word, the word would be me. Amen. If they, could, if they could describe their life in three words that would sum it all up, it would be me, myself, and I. I mean, everything is all about them. A narcissist has a grandiose sense of self-importance. I mean, I'm an important man. I'm an important person. They have a fixation with success, control, brilliance. Everything comes back to them to exalt or lift them up. They have a credence that they are extraordinary and exceptional and can only be understood by or should connect with other people that are extraordinary or as important as they are. They're so stuck on themselves, they're better than anybody else, and they can't hardly find anybody in a category with them that's worthy of their attention or their affection. Oh, let me move on here. A desire for admiration, a sense of entitlement, interpersonally oppressive behavior. They oppress others, and they build up themselves. They play down others. They're competitive.
They're the person that when you try to talk to them, no matter where you've been, they've been more places. No matter what you have, you've got one, they've had two. Even if you're sick in your body, you have a disease, uh, they survived one a lot worse than that. Amen. They've got the ugliest dog, the prettiest girlfriend, and the straightest shooting gun that's ever been, and nobody else can compare to them. They're great. They're grand. They have very little empathy, that is to say. They have very little feeling for how anybody else feels because they're all about themselves. They don't care about your inconvenience. They don't care about how you feel about anything. It's not that they are void of empathy. It is that they just don't get that other people have feelings. It is all about them. They have a resentment of others or a conviction that others are resentful of them. I mean, I'm so grand and I'm so great. Everybody else must be a little uh, jealous of me. And they display egotistical and conceited behaviors and attitudes. Now, that's aggravating right there to deal with. But really, frustrating and aggravating is really about as far as that goes unless you let them manipulate you and take it further. But it's all about them. Amen. I, I was talking to a preacher who just got married, and I, every time I got around him, you couldn't carry on a conversation with the man. Amen. If you tried to talk about what you preach, oh, I preached that years ago. I, I, I was talking about another great evangelist. Somebody said, oh, somebody told me I, I passed him up years ago. We was building a house out there, and he came to see the house. He walked around our little pad there that we had as we're building a house on, and he said, my house going to be way, way bigger than this house. Amen. He got married, and we was talking about the wedding, and he wanted me to watch the video. I'm sitting down. I'm watching the video. There he stands in the, in the wedding beside his beautiful wife, and he says, watch me right here. This is where I do this, and this is where I do that, and this is where I do the other, and, and this is when this is. And I said, son, did you know there was two people that got married in that wedding? There was you and your bride. I said, did it ever occur to you that the wedding is mostly about the bride and all of my guys can tell you when it comes to a wedding what do you do men you show up you shut up and you say yes ma'am it's not all about us that's her day and God's day we just join it in amen we just we're just joining in but so narcissistic is this preacher and others amen that life ministry relationship is all about him and that can be a very miserable relationship for the person that's married to a narcissist. They're hard to pastor. They're hard to deal with. You can't tell one no. You can't disagree. How dare you? Amen, because life is all about them. They're not just charming and extroverted. They're possessed with themselves. Amen. Is that not what 2 Timothy chapter 3 says? Men shall be lovers of their own selves. That is a characteristic of the old nature, the fleshly nature of the carnal, natural man. But you see that continual progression from self-love 
malignant self-love in the life of a narcissist. That, that, that sense of entitlement, that grandiose sense of importance. Life is all about me. Everything has to revolve around me. Oh my, that's a hard thing to witness in the lives of, of someone, a family that's married and, and you got dad or you got a narcissistic mother and the life of the spouse and the children have to revolve around the extreme selfishness. What they require, what they want, it's sad. I said it's sad. And what that narcissist needs is a trip to an altar to come to understand that life isn't all about him or her. It's about Jesus Christ. The great hindrances, in a great hindrance, the greatest hindrance in the heart of that narcissist is to turn that life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. It requires a deliverance from the old self-life. And that one who worships himself, that one who wants to live his own way, that one who wants to do his own thing. There are two ways a narcissist is created. It usually comes up through childhood. It's usually that child that's been spoiled and doted over, and they've been told how great they are, how pretty they are, how special they are. They've never been, had guidelines put on them. Amen. They've never had any restrictions put on them. Their mom and dad worshipped them, and they grew up worshipping themselves. Then there's the other extreme, that child that was abused, that child that was neglected, who had to learn how to fend for himself. They got no love from other people. They had to love themselves. But it, in both of the extremes, they grow up, and somewhere along the line, they become to themselves the most important thing. You say, well, Rev, how does that translate into an adulthood where someone has suffered a past that they could not help, that has produced the person they are. I tell you what the solution is. It's right out beside this communion table in front of this pulpit. It's a trip to an old-fashioned altar. It's being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's allowing the life of Christ to replace that old life, being moving away from that natural state and being conformed to the image of Christ by the Word of God and by the Holy Ghost. Amen. There's no darkness in that new creation and no narcissism in Jesus. You hear me? But we see that continual process as it moves from narcissism, I, I, me, my, into narcissistic, narcissistic rather, sociopathological behavior. Now let's look at that. It's everything that I've mentioned above with persistent patterns of disregard, violation of the rights of others, consistent of at least the following, resulting in hurting, mistreating, and using others. A sociopath, now how Hollywood's made that a murderer along with a psychopath. Not, not all psychopaths are serial killers, but all serial killers are psychopaths or sociopaths. You understand what I'm saying? But they use others to their own benefit. Amen. These are church splitters. Come on now. These are church splitters. These are the ones that, that, that climb the job on the ladder. They're the greatest employee. They're, they're one of the favorite members, have a wonderful personality. They can charm a whole room. They become the center of attention. Everybody thinks they're the greatest. They're the one that'll slip you a $100 bill and tell you how great they are. And what you see is what you got, but you don't see the motive behind that. They'll take you out to eat. They'll ingratiate you. They'll wrap you up. And all the while, 
that sociopath, that narcissistic sociopathological mind is pulling you into their corner, into their team, so that when they get ready to make a move, they've got a posse. Amen. They've got a team. They have got a group. Amen. That's what I say. They're, they're a church splitter. They'll climb the ladder. They'll step on good men's backs. They'll lie and put other people down so they can have that management position, so they can have the highest paying job. There's always a motive behind what seems to be the goodwill of this type of a person. Now, do we see that in the Bible? We absolutely do. We see it in Absalom. Amen. Absalom was pretty, and he knew he was. Oh, my. He had that physique. He had that long hair. He pulled that hair, the Bible said, once a year. But all Absalom ever wanted was his father's throne. Now, David loved his son and failed to see it coming. Oh, that covert narcissist is the one you don't see coming. He loves you, but the whole time he's smiling at you, talking about affection. He's figuring out a way to take what you have. Oh, yes, Absalom sits out at the gate of that city. Those men come in and out. He kisses them on the cheek. I love you, brother. I'm on your team. I'm on your side. I hear what you're saying. I, I don't know why daddy does things like he does. I don't understand. I love daddy, but I don't understand him sometimes. I'd never do anything to hurt daddy, but if I was king, come on here. Say amen. If I was king in dad's place, your life would be a whole lot better. Amen. Absalom was a clinical narcissistic sociopath, and he raised up a rebellion against his own dad. What happened to him? What happened to him? What was one of the traits of his glory became the very thing that brought his downfall. He caught that long hair in an oak and he hood that hung there. Amen. Oh, E.L. Terry preached a message called the mule walked on. Not even the mule wanted to stay around Absalom when old Absalom fell. He had nothing else to offer. He's hanging in an oak and young men came and threw darts in him and killed him. A sociopath always self-destructs in the end. Amen. Using others. Scheming. Always. The narcissist is about me, myself, and I. But that, that sociopath is about you. Amen. You. Tell you how wonderful you are. Prophesy good things over you. He's the one fall down beside you in the altar, getting your ears speak in tongues. I understand what you're going through. I don't understand that, Pastor, either. I'm, I'm with you. I'm on your team. I'm praying for you. It's not long. He's got a whole group seeing things his way. He's took something over. He split something apart. He's made a mess. Amen. And people that follow after that are heading to the same destruction with him. And God said through the apostle Paul that that would be the condition that we have to contend with as a church in the last days in our present society. I've pastored those men. I've pastored those men. I've pastored those men that met with 10 other men before a men's meeting and said, now here's the way we're going to go. Amen. I know what it's like to stand up in that men's meeting and get blindsided. I know what it's like for a group to rise up. And... That don't happen by accident. That don't happen by chance. Everybody don't just get the same idea at the same time. Come on. There's always somebody that's a ringleader in a situation like that. And gullible people that think that's the best person they've ever met because he knows how to appeal. It's a very evil, dark, deep, demonic strategy. Amen. They don't respect boundaries. 
The sociopath doesn't respect boundaries. They scheme to take over anything they desire. It drives them. Once they see something that someone else is doing and they'd, they'd rather do that, it drives them. It's all they think about. It's all they can talk about. And they'll find whatever reasons they can. Amen. I've dealt with that. Well, if I was the pastor, if I was doing that mission, if I was doing that work, this is the way I would do this is what I would do. You know, all of that plays in. Amen. But the scheme behind that all is to be able to do just that. And if they can't take it over, they try to ruin it. They, they disrespect in a social, a societal way, they disrespect social norms. They're the person that believe the rules exist for everybody else. They bring that mindset. It's out there in the world, the corporate world. They bring that to church. They believe that social norms are for everybody else. They're that person who just always doesn't seem to fit in. They're just a little different. There's the rest of the world and the rest of the world's way and the accepted way and their way. And that difference sometimes is what it is that attracts the attention of others. They live by their own rules because their rules are right in their own eyes. They impose their rules on others, and they become legalistic in their rules. And it's amazing how righteous a narcissistic, sociopathological Christian, so-called, can be. All of a sudden, if they don't like something in the church, whether it be uh, music, whatever, doesn't matter what it is, ministry, whatever, uh, whatever they don't like, all of a sudden it's wrong for everybody. There's no such things as personal convictions about anything because if they have something that's personal, then it's the goal everybody else ought to be living up to. Their way, their word, the way they think, the way they do is right, and they criticize anything and everything that doesn't add up to what they think. They become a legalist without even realizing what they are. Now, this not only applies to people out there in the world, not only people that sit on pews in the church. There's a lot of narcissistic sociological pastors, and there's a lot of narcissistic evangelists. And there's a lot, as a matter of fact, if you look for narcissistic sociopathological people, you look in the top tiers of the corporate, financial, and religious world. They climb to the top. They dog eat dog. They politic. They, they get people together. There's, they, listen, there's a reason why politicians, there's a reason why politicians have the name that they have for the most part. Amen. Most of them are just flat out sociopaths. They, they've scratched and lied. They've stepped on people's backs to get where they are, and they have had no feeling or empathy for anybody, and they'll get what they want at any cost. We see this all through the Word of God. Now, there, there are three persistent uh, deceitfulnesses in lying. It's lying that they use to uh, con other people. That, that, that's their game. Or number three, rather, persistent deceitfulness in lying to con others for their personal gain. I was on a fast, a long fast, several years ago when the Holy Ghost dealt with me and gave me names and said, you cut yourself off from these people. He didn't say it in what I'm preaching to you tonight. But he said, cut yourself off from, from those who use ministry as a means of personal gain. He let me know there's a path I want you to walk, and you cannot walk that path associated with that kind of a spirit. You believe one thing, I made those corrections. Amen. Relationships are used for personal gain, deceitfulness, coercion, dominance, intimidation, or ingratiation. The one thing they never count on is that there's anybody out there with enough discernment or knowledge 
to figure them out. There's one thing this type of human hates and despises is for somebody to look at them and say, I've got your number. I know what you are. I know what you're up to. And when you're on the corporate, in the corporate world, you can fire them. Amen. But when you're in the church, you understand you have to be dumb like a fox. You know, but you don't let them know you know because they strategize on how to pull you out and get you to act and say, see, there it is. I told you so. There it is. I told you. I was on a mission trip several years ago, and on that mission trip, was a very narcissistic person. I watched that person go to that pastor's men and talk that pastor down to those men. He's an evangelist. And I sat there and listened to him. So I, I let a night or two go by, and I told one of his main guys, I said, let everybody else go out to eat tonight. I want you to stay. We was on the foreign field. I said, I want you to stay here with me. I said, man, do you realize what's even going on? He is supplanting your pastor. And I told that pastor, I told him, I said, you are letting that guy get under your skin in front of all your men, and he is making you look bad, and that is exactly what he is trying to do. Now is not the time to deal with that. Let me tell you something, folks. If you keep, I've lived this, I've lived this when I shouldn't have survived it, when I was too young to know what I was doing. It had to be the Holy Ghost to give me the wisdom and to lead me into how to deal with certain situations or every church I've ever pastored, and this is the third, would have been torn up and split until it couldn't survive by these kind. I'm telling you, in the church world, the devil's got them planted all through. They know how to cause discord. They know how to cause confusion. They know how to get a pastor out on a limb and and make him look bad in front of his congregation. That's why we got a lot of pastors that's literally, uh, literally living with PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. You thought that was only for soldiers that fought wars. Amen. I suppose it is. So I can tell you this spiritual warfare, it gets very intense. But somewhere along the line, amen, God either reveals that type of person if the mind and the motive stays pure, if we stay on our prayer bones, if we keep discernment, and in some cases, God, God cuts them down. I said to my wife one time, the church was facing a very dangerous situation, the church I was pastoring. I said, I'm tired of it. I am tired of, of being nice. I'm tired of accommodating. I knew when that chain got jerked, that man's going to tear that church all to pieces. There people thought that man walked on water. Amen. She said to me, said, I was praying. I said, I was praying you leave that alone. I said, I'm the pastor of the church. I ain't supposed to leave that alone. She said, leave that alone. God showed me in prayer. There's nothing you can do that won't tear everything apart. That devil's smart, folks. I said, he's smart. She said, God showed me he's going to cut him down. It's sad. It's a sad thing to say. It's a sad recognition. But I'm telling you, God done that. I've seen that happen twice in 30 years of preaching when that situation could not be handled by myself before God let the entire ministry of a church get shipwrecked and derailed over, over an Absalom. I've seen God reveal him or cut him down. Amen. Whereas the narcissist is so self-centered that he only thinks about or talks about himself. That sociopath, though he is a narcissist, is self-centered, but he's a schemer, and he uses others for his own self-gain and self-interest. He usually, as we said, becomes a center of attention. He usually has a crowd. He's always got lackeys 
somebody that takes his word for law. Go here, go there, do this, do that. And they'll listen to him when they won't listen to anybody else. And I can tell you, folks, that's outside of God's divine order when it comes to a church. That happens in the corporate world. A boss man finds out he'll fire him. But God set up an order in the church. He put a pastor in that church for the spiritual direction of that church. Now, listen to me. When somebody comes around your way, they're always subtly in opposition but very nice about it in the beginning stages, slipping some money in your pocket, showing you favoritism, patting you on on the back, drawing you in. You better be careful. You better let the Holy Ghost show you what's going on. It, it's very possible that the devil slipped one in somewhere like God's had to deal with in the Word of God. The apostle Paul dealt with this. John dealt with this. Moses dealt with this. But in every case, God was on their side because they kept their heart and their motive pure. Don't you ever think that when a church is doing what we're doing, when, when we're obeying that call and taking the gospel around this world, that the devil won't try every strategy from every angle to derail this church, even if he has to raise up something in that church to pull the confidence in their direction, he'll use that to destroy that church. Amen. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Amen. That type of an individual does not care about those whom he pretends to love. It is his agenda or her agenda all the way that matters. If they can't run it, they'll wreck it or ruin it, and they'll leave that poor church or that job, whatever, family, Amen. They'll leave it in almost total ruin. I've seen that sociopathic spouse. Amen. That narcissistic spouse. I've seen them. I've seen them wreck. I've seen them ruin families. But they always seem to not be able to never to, to say no to something they want until they eventually press it so far they self-destruct themselves. They self-destruct in their family. They self-destruct in their church. They always come to some kind of a disagreement. All you have to do is sit back and wait. It's coming. Amen. You can predict the behavior. It's coming. They always seem to run to wreck and ruin. But the sad part about it is it's not just their lives. It's the lives of others that are effective, affected, affected rather. It pays to have discernment. Let me tell you something else, folks. It pays to have good eyes in your head. Amen. We talk about gut feelings and that feeling that we feel. Amen. Sometimes that's discernment. Sometimes that's that human nature in you that senses that predatory nature in somebody else that says something here is not right. Pay attention to that. Oh, my God, help us. He's the kind that people will think, as we said, greatest human being they've ever met or known because he knows how to appeal, but he's always striving all along the line to be the leader of whatever pack. An impulsive opportunist. An impulsive opportunist. He can be that man that does so well, that can be doing so good, but he doesn't know how to deny himself. When the idea strikes and the opportunity is right to look at something on that phone, nobody else can see him. He can't help himself. He looks up. When the idea or opportunity presents itself to tell a little lie in business, it's like he can't help himself. When the opportunity strikes for him to gain ground or gain favor by saying something or doing something that's not right, it's almost like he can't help himself. They violate the greatest trust and destroy the greatest relationships and expect everybody else to understand them 
because they feel justified in doing or saying what they did. It wasn't their fault. It wasn't their fault. I know a man who literally had an affair with his best friend's wife. Classic clinical narcissistic sociopath. Talked in church ever, talked in tongues every Sunday in a church. Laid hands on people, prayed for them. Literally had an affair with his best friend's wife. These things came out along the trail. And his best friend is still his best friend. How does that work? Hmm? It's a spirit. That's how that works. I, I was going through a hard time. I was having a bad time. She understood when my wife didn't and you wasn't around to meet her needs. That's a sociopath, folks. But until they get caught, they'll never sit down. No, no. You're not going to preach and put them in an altar of repentance. Now, they're going to prove to you and everybody else that they're all right by laying hands on everybody instead of praying for themselves when they know they themselves are wrong. Sister Rogers, am I preaching right tonight? Have we seen that? Have we lived that? Sure we have. Amen. It's a part of what goes on in the church and in that world. Com uh, an impulsive opportunist. They can commit the greatest sins on an impulse and expect to either be overlooked, accepted, or forgiven quickly and put on a fast track back to the limelight. Easily irritated, aggressive, prone to repeated uh, 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 verbal assaults, if not physical altercations and assault. Reckless, often disregarding the safety of others and oneself. Persistent inability to maintain consistent behavior. They have a hard time with that, but they wear that mask. You know, I said all aggression in church is passive because people are always on their best behavior when they're at church. But how many times have I had that crying wife come to me and say, Rev, he's an angel at church, but he's a devil at the house. Amen. I've, had them, I've seen them shout, dance, speak in tongues, lay hands on people, cuss their family out at home. But that mask, if you watch them close, if you watch them close, that mask will always slip. And you see the reality of the individual they really are. Let me tell you something, folks. They're toxic. They're toxic to families. They're toxic to business. They're toxic to the church. They cannot maintain that because it's a facade anyway. It's not what they really are. Amen. It's all of a sudden. Indifferent rationalization without remorse. No concern for the feelings, wants, needs of others. No remorse after harming others. As long as they get what they want, they have no boundaries. They don't care. They just want something because they don't have it. They want to possess it. They want to stand in the limelight. So uh, manipulative, deceitful. Uh, callous, cold, hostile, and aggressive, irresponsible, impulsive, and risky behavior. Now, as you move on beyond that, you get into psychop uh, psychopathy, which is all of the above, but without feeling it all, extreme deviousness, darkness, and very, very dangerous. Whereas Absalom was a sociopath, Jezebel was a psychopath. She was bloodthirsty. She had killed a man for the least discretion. When that covert narcissist whined and cried to that psychopath Jezebel and said, said Naboth had the audacity to tell me I couldn't have that vineyard, she said, that's all right. We'll kill him over grapevines. That's how callous, that's how hard that psychopathic Jezebel was. She'd kill a man just to get what he had. Psychopathy. Zero empathy, fearless, total disregard for the consequences of themselves or others. And again, where do you find them? Mainly in finance, religion, and in leadership in the corporate world. 
That's a lot, how a lot of them got there. They're usually in top tier or either well on their way. So you have to watch that chapter. If it wasn't for the Holy Ghost, I'm telling you, listen, I, I had to deal with a preacher. Listen, I had to deal with a preacher years ago who molested his own daughter. Listen to what I'm saying. Who molested his own daughter, carried out a, an adulterous affair while he was on a mission field. And when he, when he talked to his family and they said, how could you? He said, I was going through a hard time. A hard time expecting everybody to say, well, bless your heart. I guess you must have had a reason to do all the things you've done. Lord, I'm only going to get half this done. i got to quit. I can't preach all night. But their actions are always justified because even in their wrong, it was somebody else's fault. Never theirs. Always somebody else's fault. They tell you what you want to hear. They let you see what you want to see. But all along the way, there's a motive behind it that destroys everything that it touches. It's poison. It's toxic. Now back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We find two of these. One most likely was an extroverted or out there narcissist, sociopath, maybe psychopath. I never met these gentlemen. And there's very little said about him in the Word of God because about the time the Word of God gives us an introduction, the Bible lets us know that God killed them. Amen. God dealt with them. God wouldn't let that exist to destroy his work that he intended to do in the lives of the children of Israel. God had a promised land to lead them to. God had a church. God had a, a nation to establish, and he wasn't going to let these destroy it all. But that didn't stop these from standing up to Moses, or standing against Moses, rather. And their name is Janies and Jambres, and it says they withstood Moses. So do these also resist the truth, men of corruption up minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But listen, but they shall proceed no further for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. They almost always self-destruct or God cuts them down at the end of the line. I want you to understand something, church. No matter what the enemy uses to stand against a church, no matter what the devil uses to come against a ministry, whether it's a pastor, mission evangelist. It, it may be some pastor out there that's attacking a good church. And I can tell you if that church, if that individual will stay on the main line, keep that mind right, keep that heart pure. Amen. The Bible still says that no weapon formed against us will prosper. We may get wounded. We may get in trouble once in a while. The fight may get rough. And I'm telling you, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Hell will assail the church. Hell will assail the pastor. Hell will attack the family. And there's always somebody, it seems, willing to be the devil's puppet. Come on, somebody say amen. But God is greater than any strategy hell can throw our way. And at the end of the line, regardless of how deceitful, regardless of how fierce, regardless of how, how violent the attack, the church always stands in victory with the Lord by our 
side. Hallelujah. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Behold, he said, I give unto you all power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I've watched them rise up through the years. Amen. But we still moving. We still going. We still surviving like a mighty army marches God's church because every time the devil raised somebody or somebody up to destroy it, amen, God brought them down or God revealed them and the church walked on. Amen. Dogs ate Jezebel and scattered her in excrement on a hillside. Amen. But Israel went on. Absalom died hanging in a tree. But Israel went on. Alexander the coppersmith faded away into obscurity. But the apostle moved on. And I'm telling you, God has his church. God, I feel the Holy Ghost. You better be careful what you touch. You better be careful what you talk against. You better be careful how you treat the body of Christ. It is the body of Christ. I said it is the body of Christ. And the Holy Ghost is going to protect that body. Oh, I was having an hour. I haven't got there yet. <laughs> God is going to take care of his own. Musicians come in here. I don't even know how to give an altar call tonight. Well, I'm, I'm going to close. I'm going to close. Musicians come. I've dealt with the flesh tonight. I wanted to move in. I'll go there Sunday night. I wanted to bring the contrast of that downward progression of the natural state of the carnal man into that place of no conscience. Now, this is where psychologists say our society is at. Matter of fact, they're scared to death. They're saying that one in every 25 people is a sociopath in our present society. That's four people in a crowd of 100 across the nation. That's in the job, in the church, wherever, in the family, in the homes. They say that one in every 100 is a psychopath. Think about that. One person out of every hundred is a psychopath. That's what they term it. That's what they label it. But the Bible talks about that one without conscience. The Bible identifies those kind of people, not in these terms, but the Bible identifies them as what they are, given over, reprobate. The world calls them toxic. The Bible says they're given over. You see that progression in Scripture. Uncleanness. Moves from one state to another. I'm trying to think of that message that we, we talked about here a while back. What's those three? Uh, until God gives them over. The give-ups. You, you remember any of that? My mind just went blank. Yeah. The give-ups of God. I'll bring it back to you because you need that. I, I was glad to read it myself. I want you to, I want you to hear that.
It talks about God gave them over. God gave them up. I apologize. I can't pull that in right now. But that's the Bible. That's what the Bible says about them. And so what we've seen tonight is, is some spiritual parallels with what's scaring some of the modern leading cutting-edge psychologists to death because they see a society that's going headlong into destruction. And you know the only thing standing between them and destruction? You and I. It's like when the plague came and the people started dropping dead like flies and Moses said to Aaron, he said, hurry up, hurry up. He said, get a censer out there and stand between the people and God. He was literally, the Bible said, standing between the living and the dead, beseeching God, God, don't let them all die. Because God had an intercessor, some lived. It's a sick world we live in. It's a sad world we live in. It's a world going crazy. And I'm telling you, there's a church in this world that stands in opposition to it all. And we have God by our side. Stand with me here, please. How does someone start down that path? Well, baby steps. They don't read their Bible. They don't pray. They get selfish. They let the devil say stuff to them, and they start agreeing with him. And they keep going, and they keep going, and they keep going, and they keep going, and they keep going until after a while, they're lost. And after a while, all that matters is what I want. And then, how can I manipulate things to get what I want? And it just keeps going, and it keeps going. You see, those are the real dangers as a Christian of becoming cold and indifferent in God. That downward progression never stops. Never stops. So we have to stay prayed up. We have to stay right. It's one thing when that world deals with it out there, and they do. And I'm telling you, everything, and that list is long. I've mentioned tonight to you I've dealt with as pastoring three churches. Blow your mind and had it not been for God been in bad trouble. Let us pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you, God, for your presence that we felt in this house this evening. I thank you, Lord, that though the strategies of the enemy are many against us, God, we stand confidently tonight that you are for us. God, I pray for wisdom for myself. I pray, Lord, for us as a church that we would always and continually stand on your side and that as we recognize each other, as different as we are, as individually flawed as we might be, that we are still a part of the body of Christ. And this body and this work is more important than everything. 
and the families that you've blessed us with as a part of what it means to be in you is more important, God, than everything. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to continually, as the Apostle Paul said, die out to self, crucify the flesh, and give the devil no place. I know what I was going to tell you. Look at me here just a minute. A few weeks back, a brother in the church, this is, this is probably, probably three weeks ago now, he came to me and he said, um, the Lord gave me a dream. This, this guy, he's dreamed before and hit it right on the mark. Right on the mark. I don't know, you know, he just nails it. And he said, in that dream, he said, I woke up. He said, I was, I was very bothered. He said, there was a, he said, it was a devil. It was a spirit. And he said, that spirit had the body of a man, but the head of a bull. And he stood on two feet and had two arms. He was covered in black hair, and he had the head of a bull. I'm just telling you what the man told me. He said he wasn't huge. He said he was the size of a normal man in the church. And he said he walked off of a platform and he stood out in front of the communion table and he looked across that church and he folded his arms as if he had just done something that he was proud of. And he said, I couldn't figure that out. And he said, I began to pray, God, what is it that that spirit done that he could stand out in front of that church and be so confident that he could be proud of what he done? He said, so me and my wife got to praying about it. And he said, she talked to me and said, we just felt it and we agreed together. He said, that spirit was a spirit of division. It was a spirit of backbiting and confusion and turmoil in the church. You better be careful what you, who you run to and what you say. Somebody said, I just have to say what's on my mind. No, you don't. I promise you I don't say everything that's on my mind. Not from this pulpit, not on an airplane, not on a mission field. I got better sense than to say everything that pops in my mind because there's things that pop in my mind that don't have to be said that can cause a lot of trouble, and I ain't about that. This is God's kingdom. I got to be careful. I got to guard this tongue. You be careful who whispers in your ear, who stands around always disgruntled, upset about something who's always in the middle of every little thing that's going on, who's always tail-bearing something to somebody else. I don't know. I, I, I don't have any idea except what the man said. I don't have faces running through my head right now. I can tell you that. But here's what I know. He said, that concerns me. I said, it concerns me too. But I said, I'm so glad you had that dream. He said, why so? I said, because the devil loves to operate in anonymity. He don't like to be seen. 
He don't like to be exposed. I said, oh, that old bull spirit. The last thing he wanted was for somebody to be close enough for the Holy Ghost to be able to give him a dream to let the pastor know that that spirit was in the church. I feel the Holy Ghost tonight. I'm telling you, you may not. I don't know if you've enjoyed what I preached tonight. I could preach another hour. I feel the Holy Ghost. You hear me on a Wednesday night. Amen. When God exposes the devil, when God exposes his strategy, the church can pray. The church can stand together. I've been praying ever since. God, I rebuke that old divider in the name of Jesus. I rebuke that troublemaker. I'm talking about a spirit, not a person, in the name of Jesus. I plead the blood against that spirit that would stand so proud and bold as to think he's torn up a good church. Hallelujah. And I rebuke that spirit by name. I said, you old bull, you old spirit, I rebuke you and plead the blood against you in the name of Jesus. You have no right here. You have no authority here. This is God's house. This is God's work. How do you combat that? How do you combat that? Well, can I just tell you in plain terms? You don't listen to the bull. Say amen. I said you don't listen to the bull. You get your nose in this, put your knees in the carpet, throw your hands toward heaven, and say, Holy Ghost, lead me. Let me think your thoughts. Hallelujah. Don't you let the devil find a gateway, amen, where you stand. Don't you let the devil find a doorway in this church where you are. You make sure that where you are, the door is closed. I said the door is closed. Don't you let the devil use you. I, I, I prayed that for me. I got to quit. I'm a human being. Amen. I can get bent out of shape. Get frustrated. I get mad at people. I can't. I can get something in my head that stays there too long. Get aggravated, frustrated. I can get to thinking things. Holding on to something. And when that Holy Ghost comes and says, sometimes he'll do it through her. Boy, you better turn that loose. You better let that go. Or you better make that right. Or you're going to get in trouble and you're going to cause trouble. I have to say, my Lord and my God, don't let that be me. Don't let that be me. We were talking, I got, I, I'm not, listen, about a month ago, we were just talking about nobody in this church. It was a different situation. And she said to me, she throws out these one-liners that I hang on to. Good, good, good stuff. She just said this in conversation, and I, and I just hung on to it. She said, I would hate to be the one that stood before God after having hurt his church. And I'm telling you, folks, there will be those who will have to stand and give account for what they did, what they said that hindered the work and hurt the body of Christ. Not me. I pray ever. We prayed already, didn't we? Let's come together around this altar tonight. If I had to ask you to pray for something this evening, I, I would say let's pray for God to unify us, give us one spirit, love one another.